0: Well, what a delight to be with you this evening. Um, it's always a, a joy to come to uh, the state of Texas and to bring the Word of God here. I preached in Houston, actually, when I was a medical student at Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, and I'm glad to be back here again uh, to bring the Word of God this evening. I'm grateful to you, Richard, for your hospitality this afternoon. We had a wonderful time together over lunch, and uh, I've been greatly looking forward to bringing these messages to you at this missions conference. And I bring to you the greetings of my own congregation and my session in Greensboro. Now, as you may tell, as I'm the only man in the room with no accent whatsoever, um, I don't hail from these parts, and I will endeavor to speak slowly. You know, when the rest of the, when the whole, when the world want to make, want to find somebody of low intellectual IQ. They go to the Irish people, right? And when the Irish people want to find someone with a low IQ, they go to the Kerryman. And there's a joke in Ireland about this Kerryman uh, who walked into a, a, a pub in Dublin, and the barman said, "'Tell me, have you, have you heard the latest Kerryman joke?' And uh, the Kerryman said, "'No, I'll be warning you,' he said, "'I'm from County Kerry myself.' And the barman said, well, "'That's okay. I'll tell it slowly.' And so, I'll do my best this evening uh, to speak slowly, because we in the Irish Celt tend to run on a little bit, and uh, I'll do my best to slow down so you can actually hear what I'm trying to say. Well, the Word of God this evening, uh, in Luke 5, please, if you would turn there with me in your copy of the Scriptures. And I'm going to read, actually, the whole passage down um, to the end of the call of Levi, because those are the portions we'll be looking at over the weekend, and I want to, at the beginning of our message, give you a, um, a kind of a brief presse of where we're going this weekend. With the Word of God open, let's pray, shall we? O Lord, our God, and our Father, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent curtain. You speak, it is done, you command, and it holds fast. And we come to you this evening, our God, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, our righteousness. You have given him his head over all things, and you've put all things in subjection under his feet and have given them to the church, which is his fullness, the the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this evening we pray, O Lord God, that you would rend the heavens and come down and fill this place with your glory and your majesty and open our eyes that we might see Jesus, And that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So let me decrease, O Lord, and let Christ increase in all of our hearts, that we might love your Son more dearly and ardently as we see his glory revealed to us this evening in the mirror of the Word. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, Who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed, through the tiles, into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors with them, sorry, and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at this, his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, my goal for this weekend and these three addresses is that you might see Jesus. You might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines full in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, who existed an eternity as the form of God, the exact size and shape of God in the glory, and yet He made Himself nothing and emptied Himself, not by losing any of His divine prerogatives, but by adding to Himself the form of a bond servant. Jesus, who came down for you and for me, for sinners as far and as long as the sun shines, as He stepped down in those three great step-downs or becomings, He became flesh, and then He became sin, and then He became cursed for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and for, you and for me, Jesus. I want you to see Him. I pray God will pull back the curtains and reveal something of the glory and majesty of His Son, because that, that is the dynamo of every Christian missionary endeavor. Seeing the danger men face and the misery of fallen man in this world, those will push us some way. Those will drive us out to do missions. But seeing the glory of Jesus, His goodness, His grace, His majesty, His humility to come and reach out to the likes of you and me, seeing Him and feeling Him. There's a magnetic power in His glory that will draw us out to the world and give us the heart to pour ourselves out and give ourselves up and lay ourselves down in the service of Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray this evening that we'll see Jesus. Because the church's passion for missions, in my experience, and the church's passion for evangelism, rises and falls in direct proportion to its vision of Christ. So, we find ourselves here at the beginning of Luke's gospel, or the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, and he's preaching. I'm reminded of Thomas Watson's famous statement that God had only one Son, and He made Him a preacher. And Christ is preaching from a a fishing boat, and there's a practical reason for that, of course. Um, He's he's surrounded by people. People are pushing in. The backseat Baptists, the front row Presbyterians, all pushing in, and he, He can't, He can't, there's no space. So he's got to get out. So, he goes out into the, into the bay in the fishing boat and uses the bay, perhaps in the curved shoreline of the bay, the natural amphitheater. So, there was a practical reason for why he's using the fishing boat. But there's also a, a deeper reason, I think, a, a metaphorical reason. He's, he's mixing his metaphors because he's, he's using a fishing boat as a pulpit. And then he says to the disciples, don't be frightened. From now on, you'll be catching men. And you see… What he's doing, he's saying, you use nets and hooks to catch fish, but you use words and sermons to catch souls. There's no accident the God of Scripture made the universe with words. A thought would have done, and he could have Imagine the universe into existence, but He spoke it into existence so you would know that when you had this book in your hands, you have in your hands, in your lips, in your heart, the most powerful creative force in existence, that when God speaks, nothing remains the same. Everything changes. And here's the Son of God, who is the Word of God, preaching to lost sinners and beckoning to His disciples unto us. He will make us fishers of men. Well, it begs the question, doesn't it, what kind of fish did or does Jesus want to catch? What kind of man is Christ trying to catch? And Luke in his gospel brings these three beautiful cameo portraits, cameos of mercy. You have a leper and a cripple and a taxman. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but actually it's the beginning and the middle and the end of the gospel. These three stories are like pearls on a string, displaying to us who Christ is and what Christ has come to do. He's come to rescue sinners. And these three stories, each in their own way, give you a portrait of what sin is and what sin does to people. Did you notice as we read the passage together, each of them, there's a, the black thread of sin runs through each of these stories. The leper, he wants to be clean, right? Clean is a technical phrase, something that's good enough to come into the presence of God at the temple and worship. Unclean things are kept out, clean things are brought in. He wants to be clean, not just healed. And then there's the paralyzed man. Well, everybody knew what his problem was. He couldn't walk, couldn't even get to Jesus. He had to be carried by his friends. But as He's lowered down from the ceiling, Jesus said the most remarkable thing, didn't He? Your sins are forgiven you. I can imagine the man saying, that's very kind and all, but I didn't come. My problem is my body. I can't walk. But Jesus, as Jesus always does, He saw a deeper problem. A deeper problem behind all of his earthly problems. This man's soul was in bondage to sin. And so Christ said, your sins are forgiven you. And then the taxman. He too is called to follow Jesus. But notice the Pharisees. They're really bent out of shape. This man eats and drinks with sinners, they say. How do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And Hamar Tuloi was a technical term in the Jewish religion back then. It described a scurrilous rascal, somebody who had no concern for God, no concern for the law, no concern for obedience. The, the New Testament equivalent of a, a sex offender, somebody you wouldn't want living in your neighborhood. And it's the word that Peter used about himself um, in the boat, when suddenly God drew back the curtains and showed him just a little bit of who Christ was in that glorious miracle, and, Jesus, and Peter falls at his feet and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a Hamartoulos, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And so this passage begins and ends with Hamartoulos, sinner, sinners, like a, one of those pieces of. Um, um, binding that holds a, a, a bale of pine straw together, this the idea of sin and sinfulness surrounds this path. So, i put it to you, these three stories aren't focusing at all on the physical malady of leprosy and paralysis and this tax man. It's tax season after all. Um, it's not focusing on that. It's focusing upon these men as sin and what sin does. It makes us dirty. And it, it, it leaves us helpless and makes us despicable in the eyes of God like Levi was in the eyes of the Pharisees, and yet for just such people, Jesus has come. And that should be tremendously encouraging to you all this evening, as it is to me, because you and I are just like these men sin is, and sin has done to us what it's done to these men. It, it, apart from the saving grace of God, it leaves us dirty, and it, it, it holds us in its thrall, it keeps us as its slaves, often as willing slaves, and it leaves us despicable, hateful in the eyes of men, and by nature in the eyes of God, and yet Christ has come in His remarkable grace to save us. So let's look together this evening then at the leper, at the leper. So, in the days of Jesus, it wasn't good to be a leper, right? They were the untouchable ones of the ancient Near East. They were sacraments of uncleanness. We speak of a sacrament as a visible sign of an invisible reality. Well, lepers in God's providence were ordained by God to be a visible sign of what sin is and what sin does to people. The thing about lepers, they were contagiously unclean. If you touch a leper, you become a leper. It seems rather unfair. They were cut off from clean society. This man could no longer live with his wife and children. He could no longer go to the synagogue or to the temple. He lived out in the leper colony, far away from the clean society, and it it seems unfair that God would single this class of people out to be treated that way. But you've got to realize that God is just giving this man justice. Everybody else is getting grace in society, that in the Old Testament, God ordained these men to be walking life-size sermon illustrations of sin. They were outwardly what we all are inwardly. We, the rest of society, got to live with the illusion of cleanliness, as if we were good and could come in to worship God, but the lepers, no, they got what we all deserved. Because sin doth make lepers of us all. And I want you to look at this man this evening, not looking at him through a window but I want you to look at him in a mirror, because this is what sin has done to you, and it's what sin has done to me as well. I want you to do that because we tend to underestimate sin. We underestimate what the Puritans would call the sinfulness of sin. And it's not hard to see why, at least four reasons. Sin seems normal to us. We are sinners. We live in a world of sin. It's full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, an evil-mindedness where men are whisperers and backbiters and haters of God and violent pride boosters and inventors of evil things, where men are untrustworthy, undiscerning, unloving, unmerciful. It's just situation normal. But we need to realize. The vast difference that separates the world in which we live from the glory of God. It's like Isaiah, when he's in the temple, going about his business, changing the showbread and different things, and suddenly the heavens are torn open, and he sees Jesus. And around Jesus, he sees these holy seraphim, literally burning ones, incandescent spirits designed to live in the blazing glory of God's infinite holiness, and to live there unconsumed, and even they can't face the the glory of Jesus. And Isaiah is there, you remember, in the temple, and, and he sees, and suddenly when he sees Jesus, everything changes. His eyes are open to God, and his eyes are open to himself. He says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I feel among, as if I live among a people of unclean lips. He, lived, he felt as if his mouth was full of excrement, because the mouth is the exhaust pipe of the heart, and from his heart it had been coming forth all these words, and he hadn't even had a moment's thought about how wicked they really were. But suddenly in the presence of God, all of the illusion was torn away, and he saw himself as God saw Himself, and that unraveled His being. He said, I can't cope. I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams, literally. We've no idea just how different God is from us. We inhabit different worlds. When I was a medical student, a fourth-year medical student, I went to India to little town north of Bangalore called Chikabalapur. And it was a different world. The whole summer was a living, walking um, culture shock. But one of the things I'll never forget, in the Hindu culture, of course, cows are holy. Everything about cows are holy, even cow dung. And so when you'd walk past houses, even nice houses in nice neighborhoods, they would paint their doorsteps on cow dung, because it was holy. And they also thought that cow dung had medicinal purposes. And I remember seeing this child who was in a village, and it pulled a pot of scalding, boiling water upon itself, and was horribly burned from the chest to its feet, this little girl. And the parents had pasted cow dung as ointment, as salve, on this child's burnt. And the child was septic and horribly sick and ill and dying. Now, to them, that was was the thing you did, it was normal, but to us, no, different world. We need to realize when we deal with God, we're dealing with a being the like of which we've never met before, unutterably holy. Sin seems normal to us, also most of our sin lies hidden beneath the surface. You you clean up rather well. Um, You look like nice, decent Christians. Right? And I hope I do too. But if you knew me, you wouldn't want me preaching to you this evening. And if I knew you, I wouldn't want to preach to you either. Could you imagine... If you had a a widescreen television duct taped to your head, you can fix anything with duct tape, they tell me, duct taped to your head, and on that that screen it, it broadcast your thoughts all day long, just for one day. How many of your friendships would survive? How many of your marriages would survive? You certainly wouldn't survive a trip to Walmart. I can't believe she's gone to Walmart in her pajamas. I think that. Everybody could see it. It'd be a disaster. Most of our sin lies hidden. There's a, uh, an acquaintance of ours in, in, in Greensboro, and he was in a horrendous motorcycle accident recently, and he was trapped under the car, and his brain was left without oxygen for a long time, and he got a significant diffuse axonal injury. And my wife was talking with um, his wife, recently, and hearing the update, and um, he's, he's come out of the coma, but he's not himself anymore. He's changed. His frontal lobe's been damaged, and he's making inappropriate advances towards the nurses and different things. And I was remarking to my wife last night, you know, I said, the sad thing is the head injury doesn't actually put anything into a man's heart. That's what's there by nature. That's what I would be doing if the common grace of my frontal lobe was disengaged. There's a darkness and an evil in our heart that's hidden beneath the surface, but it's not hidden to God. We underestimate sin. We need the leper to show us what it's like. We also think, we tend to underestimate our sinfulness because we think that our occasional good deed um, is who we really are. When I was a young lad, I played a lot of golf before I went to med school and then got married and then golf stopped, but I played a lot of golf as a teenager. And one of my heroes back then was Lee Turvino, I'm, I'm revealing my age. And Lee Turvino um, was a kind of witty guy, and he was out playing in a pro-am tournament once with this rich businessman who really wasn't a very good golfer. And the, the, the rich, he would be swinging and slice the ball into the trees, hook the ball into the water, you know, in the sand trap all the time. And the businessman would bang the ground and curse and throw his club into the trees. And after about three or four holes of this, Lee Vino had taken about as much as he could bear. And he said, you know, sir, you are not nearly good enough at this game to be that angry. Your problem is that you think the occasional good shot you hit, you think that's the real you. No, it's not. That's luck. The slice and the hook that's the real you. And we can do good things, often for the wrong reasons, but we, they form a smoke stream. We don't really see the depths of our heart, that we're foolish and disobedient and deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spend our life in malice and envy and are hateful and hate one another. And then, the fourth reason why we need the leper is because we think God looks at sin the way we do. I remember one time when I was, many years ago, I was riding with a neighbor back in a different part of the world where I was living then, around a lake, and we were on mountain bikes. And I was trying to share the gospel with this guy. He wasn't a believer. Um, He kind of went to church, but he he was, you know, a, a, a... a churchian. He, he, he went to church, but he didn't, I was convinced he didn't know Christ we were I was talking to him about the gospel. And he just couldn't grasp the reality of sin. And I, I was trying everything, couldn't, just couldn't get it to sink into his skull, what it meant to be a sinner. And we came up alongside or behind these four girls who were jogging in what could only be described as exercise underwear. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to get past them. And he said to me, after we got past them, he said, oh, this is one of those times I wish I wasn't with a pastor because I would got off and pushed the bike and enjoyed the view. And suddenly it occurred to me, I said, how would your wife feel if she heard you speak like that? And he went, oh, he said, it would be very bad. <laughs> be very bad. I said, yes, it would, wouldn't it? To you, it's just a... You know, that's what boys are boys. You know, let's enjoy the view. That's in your mind. But to your wife's mind, that look would be a betrayal of your marriage. Yes. I said, so you, you can't understand that the God of heaven, before whose eyes the angels hide their faces, that he looks upon sin differently than you do. In his presence, the sun would be like a dark spot. He's holy, holy, holy. Your problem is, you think that God looks upon sin the way you do. He doesn't. And so, God has given you and me, the leper, as a picture of what sin is and what sin does to help us stop underestimating sin. How does leprosy picture sin? Well, first of all, leprosy defiles us, it makes us contagiously guilty. Just like in the Old Testament, with certain bodily discharges, if you sat in a chair, it became dirty. If you touched a plate, it became dirty. This man, he was totally unclean. There was no way to cleanse himself. He was forever, eternally unclean. And everything he touched, everywhere he went, became dirty also. A picture of how sin spreads through a community. He who walked with the wise man will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm, right? And so this man, everywhere he went, and He'd, he'd come into a town. He had to maybe carry a bell and cry out, "Unclean, unclean!" And mothers would be gathering up Tommy and Jill and Shlomo and say, "Don't come on inside, child. Inside. Touch a leper, you become a leper. Inside, inside." And and Pharisees they kept in their pocket a bag of stones for the sole purpose of keeping um, lepers at a safe distance. Nobody would touch him. He was dirty, unclean, and, and pure lived outside the town, far away from normal people. Sin defiles us. Sin also divides us. It divides us. It alienates us. You know, one of the frustrations of living in America, I love living in America, but my mum and dad, who are well up in their 80s now, they live in Northern Ireland, and in a car at least, you can't get here or there from here. There's no way to drive, there's separation, and sin separates us. In the Garden of Eden before Adam sinned, Adam and Eve were naked and were unashamed. Now, that's not a statement that the garden was a nudist colony. No, it was, but not in that way. But it it was a symbol that they were happy in one another's skin. They were content to be known and to know, without the fear that if you knew me, you would find me disappointing and a letdown." Adam could reveal himself to Eve, and she could reveal himself to him, and there was no shame. But the moment sin entered, you remember, all that changed. They knew they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they began to cover up. They made little bikinis for themselves with leaves. Because they no longer felt safe in one another's presence. They were frightened. If they knew me, they wouldn't like what they knew. No. I don't feel safe to love this person or to be loved by this person. Paul says, love flows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You have to have a good conscience to love somebody. So maybe there's a man and he's addicted to pornography and nobody knows but him and and God, and it's his little secret, but his heart, his conscience is defiled. And when he's with his wife, and his wife's being kind to him, he can't bear it. Because in his, in, his, in his heart, there's a little warning light saying, like, like, a, like an, an oil warning light on your dashboard, which doesn't mean put oil in the car. It means buy a new engine, right? And the, oil, the, the, the light's flashing, and it's saying, if she knew who you really were, she would run a million miles from you. And that pain is so bad. I've seen men be mean to their wives and start an argument to drive her away, because it's easier to justify yourself in thinking, she's a mean shrewd lady, because we're fighting now. But it's, it's easier to be apart than to risk the pain of intimacy when sin is, your conscience is tearing you away from her and vice versa. And there's this fear of being known, right? Sin, she makes the presence of others uncomfortable. But when God comes down in the garden, the fig leaves won't do, Adam and Eve run and hide from Him, can't bear to be found in His presence. There's a division, there's a separation, and that's pictured for us. In the leper, cut off from clean people. It then defiles us, it divides us, it disfigures us. It takes the beautiful young lady and turns her into a hideous hag. It takes the handsome young man and turns him into a dishevelled tramp. You get a leonine fasces as the, as the facial tissue thickens, and it numbs your extremities too, so you might burn your hand and not know, and it's not painful, so you go to bed and there's a blister in your hand or a raw wound, and at nighttime a rat would climb up into your bed maybe and gnaw your finger off, but you can't feel it. You wake up in the morning and the finger's gone, and then the infection spreads in the hand. You lose more digits and more of the hand, and slowly but surely the lepers become shriveled and disfigured. That's what sin does to us, isn't it? it? It disfigures us. It makes us much better at hurting others than healing them. Are tongues made to praise God and to encourage other people? No, Solomon says. There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword. And there's not one; it's everyone. We all do that. Speak rashly. It disfigures every part of us. It makes us ugly in Northern Ireland when you meet something or someone particularly ugly. The phrase is, there's ugly as sin, they say. And The leper really was as ugly as sin. And last, before it's all said and done, sin, leprosy destroys us. It's a death sentence. I was reading recently, a couple of years ago, Christopher Hitchens' book, Uh, on death. Christopher Hitchens, of course, the famous atheist who died of esophageal cancer a few years ago, and in this book he's writing, it's on death and dying, I think is the title, but in it he says, if you're not busy being born, then you are busy dying. Many times he said, I woke up feeling like death, but nothing prepared me for the experience early in June one morning when I regained consciousness and felt myself shackled to my own corpse. Leprosy is a death sentence, and so is sin. The wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter whether you live north of I-10 or south of I-10. The death rate is the same the world over. One death for every person. doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. How much private health insurance you can afford or can't afford. Sooner or later, you have to pay the ferryman for Adam's choice. Therefore, as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's the leper. Now, this man, he comes to Jesus, and did you notice he was a man full of leprosy? It hadn't taken just a little piece of his heart he was taken all of them. He was full of it. It was the most extreme case. Put yourselves in this man's shoes for a second. Many years ago, perhaps, you first saw the spot. Maybe it was in your arm, covered mostly by your garments. You were shaving one morning or in the shower, and you see this little spot in your arm, and you think, it's probably nothing. And you, you don't. And then it gets a bit bigger, and you think, it's probably You put a Band-Aid over it. And it gets bigger, there's a little white spot, it gets bigger and bigger. And then finally one day you're in the bathroom, shaving in the morning, brushing your teeth, and your wife says to you, what's that in your arm? Oh, it's nothing. No, no, it's not. What's that in your arm? And she looks at it, and as soon as her eyes fall upon it, the light in her eyes dies. She knows what it is, and you have no choice, you've got to go to the priest. So you make your way down to the temple and you stand outside the back of the temple and there's a long line of people and the priest comes out and he walks down the line. No, clean. 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 Then he gets to you. Looks at your arm. Unclean sounds like a CNN reporter speaking of our former President Donald Trump, unclean. The lips drip with the stain. Unclean. The words cost him nothing, but they take everything from you. Everything changes. You go home, unclean. When you get home, your wife's already standing there, and she's packed your belongings in three bags at the front of the door, and they're out, on they're out three feet from the um, step, social distance. But it might as well be a million miles. And you walk up to these bags, and your four children are behind the back of mummy's legs, and little Madeline, she wants to run to daddy. Mummy stops her. Daddy's dirty. Don't touch. Touch a leper, and you become a leper. And you pick up your bags and you walk away from your house. It's never a home again. And you go out to your new family beyond the city gates in the dirty place where the trash is burnt, the leper colony. And you're there for some time. Leprosy does its work. You become dishevelled and horrible. And And then you hear about this wandering rabbi whose smiling eyes could make a blind man see. And something happens in your heart, hasn't happened in ten years. The flame of hope bursts into life. And you hear Jesus is in this particular part of the, in Capernaum and in Galilee, and you, and you go to him. And he's surrounded by crowds, but when you're a leper, a crowd are no problem. They just spread apart, and suddenly it's you and. Jesus, the one who was the beginning of everything that ever had a beginning, the one before whom the angels hid their faces in His Isaacs, it's just Him and you, and you fall on your face before Him, and you say, Lord, if you're willing. You know He can, but why would He want to, right? If you're willing, you can make me clean. And then, I think the next thing you hear is the gasp of the crowd. As Jesus reaches out his hand and touches you. You almost jump because it had to be an accident, right? Nobody touches lepers. His hand touches. A clean hand on a dirty head and he's touching. You. And notice he touched him not to heal him. He healed him with his word. He didn't need to touch him while he was still dirty. And somewhere in the crowd, a little boy looks up at his mommy, but mommy, you always told me if you touch a leper, you become a leper. And that's exactly the point. In that touch, Jesus is touching, and he's saying, in the touch, it's not just catching the shame. Jesus isn't just saying. I am willing to touch you. He's saying, I am willing to become you. It's the high priest in, the, in Leviticus when the high priest put his head on the, on the animal and confessed his sins. He wasn't just transferring the guilt of the people, he was transferring the identity of the people. The, the beast became the people, and the people became the beast. And as the beast is killed, they were dying. As the beast was burned on the flames and the smoke rose up to God, they were rising up in that smoke as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Almighty. The identification, and Jesus is saying, I am willing not just to to, to bear your sin, I am willing to become it. And that closest, you know, little boys and girls, you know when you… You spill a drop of water on the table, and there's a little globule, and you maybe put some… Ask your mum before you do this, because it'll make a mess. But you pour some other water on the table, and the globules become one. Not two globules, but one globule, as they're sucked into one another. That's how the cross works. On the cross, Jesus came into the closest possible identification with sinners, uniting Himself to us. He becomes we, and we become he in that moment, like a husband marrying his wife and the bank accounts merge, and all of her debts become mine, and all of my credits become hers in the bank account. And so on the cross, sin doth make lepers, not just of us all, but sin doth make a leper of Jesus as it becomes dirty, as the stain of your sin and mine infect him to the very core of his being in that space, his body, in that time, those hours of darkness. The sin of the world coalesced upon his head, every nation, tribe, and tongue elect. Sinners of every part of the globe, all of the sins, 10,000 million lifetimes of sin coalesced upon him. As Luther said, he became the greatest sinner there ever was. He saw himself no longer as the Son of God, but as the sin of the world. He didn't say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A sin defiled him, like a wedding dress pulled through a sewer. There wasn't a clean speck in his body or soul as he becomes sin in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And then sin disfigured him. In Isaiah 52, it says he was disfigured from the human, literally in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew. See him in heaven, he looks just like God. See him on the cross, he barely even looks human. Sin defiled him, it disfigured him, it divided him. In, in his human nature, God the Son was forsaken of God in this human nature now. The Trinity is not divided, don't get me wrong, but in his human nature, God the Son is, 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 is experienced absolute cursedness beyond the bottom of finite misery. He's driven as far away as far can be, as far as the east is from the west. He is the scapegoat, bearing away your sins and your guilt. And then finally, sin destroys him as it pleased the Lord. Most amazing word, I think, in the Old Testament. The God who takes no pleasure in the death of his son, in the death of the wicked, is pleased to crush him. Jesus as He gives up the ghost and becomes our sin, that He might die our death, experiencing our curse to the uttermost. And you see the application. Let me bring this to a quick conclusion. Jesus hasn't changed. He came down from eternity into time not just to teach you, but to touch you. To absorb your sin as His. Like, when Jesus sings in the Psalms, they're His hymn book before they're our hymn book, right? My sins are more in number than the hairs of my head. Do you think Jesus just didn't sing those words? Like somebody in the community who doesn't understand the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy. No, I don't believe in the Catholic Church. No, don't, don't, don't. No, it's not saying those words. (laughs) They don't realise it's speaking about the 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 the, the Church from the whole apostolic witness. But that's another sermon. But when Jesus sang, got to that bit in the Psalms, "My sins are more in number than the hairs of my head." Did he sing those words? Yes, he did. Can you sing, Jesus, my righteousness? then Jesus can sing, you, your sins are mine. As surely as my righteousness is yours, your sins are mine. And Jesus says, I'm willing to touch you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can't be too dirty, too disfigured, too divided from God. Nobody else might know the darkness of your heart. Not even you know the full darkness, but I am willing to come and touch you to become you. Come clean, Jesus says. Come to me. Let me get my hands on you. I'm not far from you. Just move your soul. Look to me. That's how you touch me. Just look with your eyes. I'm here walking amongst the lampstands. Come to me. Come away from your sins. Come, let me touch you. Let me cleanse you. A drop of my blood could cleanse 10,000 worlds. It's enough to cleanse you. You think, I'm too sinful, I'm not going to come. No, no, you wouldn't receive me. That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> You've got all these sins you're embarrassed about. Yes, I do. Well, not coming to Jesus is another sin. You're just adding to the list. He's commanding you to come to me, and I will touch you and cleanse you and forgive you, Jesus says, and make you whole and right in the presence of God again. Come to me. know the joy of cleanliness right down to the depths of your soul. And then, I think it's in Mark's gospel, Jesus commanded this guy, don't tell anyone. And he goes and tells everybody. (laughs) Jesus tells you, go tell everybody. Maybe you think he said tell nobody. You know the hardest people to tell it's our own neighbors. It's easy to go to the other side of the town and tell them they're sinners. But going to our neighbors, you know, my, my first ministry, and I'll end with this illustration, um, was in Mississippi, dear brothers and sisters, and they loved strong preaching. They had, they had some of the greatest preachers alive come, and these men were like thunders in the pulpit, and they love getting beaten up, and I was much more thundering back then in those days, and, and they called me to be the pastor, and I came in, and I learned that it's one thing for a visiting preacher to come in and tell you you're a sinner, but when it's your pastor, it's very different. It's like a drive-by shooting, right? You know, you're sitting at the Starbucks and someone goes by the, a gang initiation and they shoot uh, and you get shot and it's painful. You think, well, they didn't mean to shoot me. It kind of takes the edge off it a bit. That's like a visiting preacher comes in and goes after the gossip in the congregation. You all know who she is or who he is and they feel bad, but he didn't mean it personally. He doesn't know me. But when your pastor preachers on gossip, it's not a drive-by shooting. It's an execution. It's like Dirty Harry getting his forty-four magnum and walking down the pulpit, putting it to the forehead and pulling the trigger. Everybody knows. And likewise with you, it's so difficult to go to your parents, your siblings, your friends, your neighbors. They know you. They see your inconsistencies. It's one of the reasons why pastors stay only short times in churches, because the people get to know them, so they move on. I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And I want to encourage you to go and tell people about Jesus. And maybe you can't even, maybe you can't preach Maybe you can't preach the gospel or share the gospel the way Pastor Richard can. Well, you can come. You can ask them, come to church on Sunday. I hear Pastor preach. I'm meeting God in his sermons, meeting Jesus. It's doing my soul good. And I met a man in church who made a blind man see and a dead man live. And that blind man, dead man was me. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Haven't we got a glorious gospel to to share and a glorious Jesus to offer people who's willing to touch the last and the lost and the least. He'll touch me. He'll touch you. He'll touch anyone. Let's pray. Father, who am I, O Lord, to speak about Jesus, His glory? I'm just one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread, but we have found the bread of life, and knowing Jesus is better than life itself. We pray this weekend as we hear more about Jesus that You would fill our hearts with His love, His glory, His beauty, and the burden for this lost world here in Houston as far as the sun shines, and through this church's witness, this world will be turned upside down by the preaching of the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, offering the Son of God to the enemies of God, and all for the glory of God. Christ we pray. Amen.